You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast featuring some of Indiana's most fascinating men and women whose impact has shaped our state, our communities, and us. Join us as we discuss their imprint on our history. Leaders and Legends is brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated, your local veteran business enterprise specializing in public relations, media relations, public outreach, crisis communications, and digital photography. My name is Robert Bain, Principal of Veteran Strategies, former Deputy Chief of Staff to Mayor Greg Ballard, and Communications Director for the Indiana Republican Party. I'm honored to be your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, the Crown Plaza Hotel and Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the law firm of Bose, McKinney and Evans, and the Bose Public Affairs Group, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is Jake Query, radio talk show host extraordinaire, sports trivia vault we're going to maybe test his ability a little bit today an all-around good guy he is uh, chris spangles conduit to sports knowledge chris is uh, suffering through these sports related podcasts but we hope he has fun today because he knows jake pretty well jake thank you for joining us on the podcast robert chris it's my pleasure um admittedly a little bit incredulous while flattered that you asked me because I'm neither a leader nor a legend. I was never a Girl Scout. I don't do construction. I don't really know a lot about, although I know McAllister's, um, <laughs> not really up to date on operating machinery. I'm not very mechanically inclined. I have been to Golden Ace and I've been to Union Station, of course, at the Crown Plaza down there. So I guess that qualifies me a little bit. And I don't know anything about the law other than occasionally being on the wrong side of it. So Considering the, my lack of qualifications for it, I'm very flattered that you asked me today. Well, you know what? One of the things that's keeping all of us sane, and we're going to talk about this a little bit, uh, you are ruling Twitter uh, at the moment with your questions and contests and your lists and the things that you're talking about uh, that is really – we don't have sports during the – Rona Palooza, unfortunately, and it's one of the things that all of us are looking forward to when life gets back to normal, whenever that is and whatever that looks like. Based on a phone conversation we had a few weeks ago when you agreed to come on, you caught the sports bug early. Can you tell us some of your earliest sports memories? Well, that's a great question, Robert. You know, so I grew up in central Indiana. My dad was in the steel business and worked for Shelby Steel, which later became O'Neill Steel out of Shelbyville, Indiana. So when I was a kid, when I was born, my family lived in Shelbyville and then we moved to Evansville for a brief bit, back to Shelbyville. And then my parents moved to Indianapolis, which was their hometown for both of them, just before I started kindergarten. So I think, Robert, here's what's always been interesting to me. I'm the youngest of three. I have two older siblings. And a lot of my friends will comment on my memory and my ability to recall things from a very young age. But I think that's easier to do when you are the youngest, because 
you have older siblings that are incorporating you and bringing you and telling you about the significance of things as they happen. So you just have a natural ability to kind of record it in your mind more. So my earliest memories of sports, I mean, I can recall probably the one that jumps out at me the most would be, I mean, I remember watching Shelbyville in 79 and North Central for that matter, where I later would go um, years later to high school. You know, they played in the IHSAA tournament in 79 north central went to the regionals and that was a big deal and i went to the games and i remember that at hinkle but the big in terms of big sporting events that are really my first memory i vividly recalling watching indiana state and michigan state in the 79 final four in salt lake city and my dad saying to me like we're rooting for this team in blue because they're from indiana and they have a really good player named larry bird and then at the end of the game i remember bird sitting on the bench with the towel over his head and me kind of having it set in at that moment that the team from Indiana was not the one that won. So I would have been just shy. You know, I would have been six and a half years old. Uh, that probably is the one that jumps out at me. I mean, I, I recall the 79 Super Bowl between the Rams and the Steelers and things like that, but probably around five or six years old from a sports standpoint would be the first things that stick out to me. Is it something that was on in the house all the time? I mean, growing up in the, it sounds like you're born like 74, Two. 70, 72, excuse 72. Me. Um, yep. I was taking notes so I could do the math. Forgive me. 72. So you grew up at a time when, uh, as you started to mature and get into high school, that's when ESPN really took off. Uh, the star was, was the way it was under the polyums, a much bigger paper. Uh, sports talk radio was, was becoming something the Pacers were up and down, the Colts come, the list goes on and on. Do you consider yourself lucky to have matured during those years as Indianapolis really starts to ramp up in terms of being on the map with its sports events? They always had the 500, obviously, but some of the other ones really came into focus just as you were hitting your teenage years. So... I think it's an extremely insightful question, Robert, and I'll try to, you know, brevity is not a strong suit of mine, but it's interesting because my buddies and I that I grew up with, and I'm very, very, very lucky that I was able to go to school with the same set of kids from kindergarten. I went to the same school system in Washington Township from kindergarten all the way through high school. And then with a lot of those guys, college as well. And my best friends are still guys that I grew up with in that coming of age. And if you think about it, to your point, I was born in 72 when I was three and a half, Bob Knight had an undefeated team. When I was eight and a half, Indiana won the national title again. When I was in the eighth grade, Bob Knight's third national championship. Reggie Miller was drafted that summer. You know, there were a number of things that went on. But I always tell people, to your point, Robert, I think for anybody, when people think about and recall the things for which they're nostalgic, that coming of age of your late teenage years, transitioning into high school, is such a an influential time for people. And it, you know, it has so much to do with shaping and molding who you are and what your interests are. And when I was the summer before I turned 15 years old was 1980, that year was 1987. And I believe 1987 to be the best year in the history of Indianapolis sports. You had Marion high school winning three straight state titles and two Mr. Basketballs and Jay Edwards and Lyndon Jones, Indiana football defeated Michigan and Ohio state in the same season. Hasn't been done since. Indiana basketball and Purdue basketball were co-Big Ten champions in the regular season. Indiana goes on to win the national championship in basketball. The Pan-American games were here. 
the Colts traded for Eric Dickerson, which was the first marquee star to come. And Al Unser Sr. wins his fourth Indianapolis 500. The Indianapolis Indians win their second or third consecutive American Association champion. So no matter what sport you were into, that was the pinnacle. That was the peak. And I was like a head on a swivel. I mean, I think I was aware even at that age that what we were seeing was not only unprecedented, but probably unmatched even to this day, you know, 33 years later. So it absolutely molded me, Robert. But I think more so than that, I had been a Pittsburgh Steelers fan because my dad was in the steel business. The Steelers were the dominant team of the late 70s that were on. You know, I know you're a Miami Dolphins fan. And so much of that is when you're a little kid, you like sure. their color scheme or you knew who Don Shula was or Dan Marino was on TV a lot. Same thing with the Steelers. We didn't have the Colts here until I was in the fifth grade. And, you know, the ABA Pacers were in their twilight when I was arriving. So I didn't get to see that. The NBA Pacers were the brown curtain doormat days of m- most of my childhood. So this, this time when everything came together, where all of a sudden Indianapolis largely due in part to the Pan American games and vaulting itself to a professional as opposed to amateur city and a showcase city. I was aware of it. And I, I took this tremendous pride that I didn't have to necessarily go and root for the Pittsburgh Steelers. For example, you know, there were teams here. I mean, the Pacers, and I loved Indiana because Indiana on their jersey, my parents didn't go to Indiana. My mom went to IU for like a year, but it said Indiana on their jersey. And I knew when I was a kid and I'd go to Florida or Hilton Head or whatever that I would tell people I'm from Indiana, and that's that, that team has that on their jersey. And the same with the Pacers. It said Indiana on their jersey. So to all of a sudden know that people outside of my home state were aware of ongoings in my home state was a tremendous sense of pride and source of pride to me that's never gone away is there something in particular that happened in your high school years and college years from a sports perspective you mentioned 1987 of course you could throw in Notre Dame they lost the Cotton Bowl that year I I believe and then they won the national championship yeah Tim Brown won the Heisman I I left that out you had a Heisman trophy winner from Indiana that year so yeah huge other than say the Super Bowl win by the Colts and the Super Bowl hosting by the city. Is there another sporting event, like something that happened that made you think, man, this is Indianapolis and this is happening and I can't believe it. The Super Bowl is obviously the pinnacle answer there because I actually had that exact thought walking downtown the night before the Super Bowl and just seeing everything. And I thought, I can't believe the epicenter of the sports world world is here. But the two things that precede that where I thought that the first one was indeed the Pan Am games, because it's so funny to me, Robert, when I was a kid, I was so excited when the Pan American games came here, the 10th Pan American games in 87 in July and August. And, you know, you had all these athletes from all over, I'd say the world, but obviously from, you know, Latin and North America here and South America here in Indianapolis. And it was such a huge deal to us. And truth be told, I couldn't tell you where the Pan American games have been ever since. I assume they still do them, but you know, it was getting national television. The opening games of the Pan American games were on national TV and it was at the speedway. And, you know, that was, we had the national sports festival in 1982 which was an, basically an AAU-level showcase 
for for high school and young college athletes across America. So we'd never seen anything like that. And going down and going to the Pan Am Plaza and seeing people trading the little pins from the different countries and all these athletes walking around. And I remember I made friends with a basketball player from Panama and I was a ball boy along with Eric Montross actually was a ball boy. And it was very surreal. It it just, I couldn't believe that for that three week period, the epicenter of sports in North America and South America was in Indianapolis. The other thing I think that kind of put a bow tie on all of that and secured us as a city was in fact, when the Pacers broke through in 94 and 95 in the Eastern conference finals, well, Eastern conference finals in 94 against the Knicks, then in 95 round two against the Knicks going into playing Orlando in the Eastern conference finals. But having those games, on either side of the Indianapolis 500. I mean, I'll never forget. I think it was, I think it was 94. It might've been 95, but one of those years, you know, certainly into like the bulls in 98, certainly it happened in 98 with the bulls and seeing on USA today, like the headline on the front page, you know, sports focuses in on Indianapolis and having the NBA and the Indy 500 same weekend. Um, you know, for a kid that grew up here in the days when it was exciting to go downtown and watch the AUL tower being built, and it was fun when people came in from out of town to show them the pyramids because that was all we had to show. It was it was surreal, man. It was a, it was I was full of pride, but it was surreal. You mentioned something earlier about the youngest being the youngest, and and maybe that being a a catalyst to, to your memory. It's, it's funny you say that because that has been said to me by my siblings. I'm the youngest of four. Most of my, my sister's 62, my brother's 61 and my other brother's 59. And um, I was recently on Facebook given the 10 albums in 10 days challenge by my buddy, yeah, fellow Eastsider, Bob Fry, who now does great work for Mayor Hogsett. And I'm looking at the albums that I want to post and they're all in the late sixties and early seventies, because even though I was four, five, six, seven, that's what I was listening to because that's what my older siblings were listening to, whether it's Abbey road or Led Zeppelin four or machine head by deep purple or whatever. There is something to that. Do the memories of you as a kid, the memories you have as a kid include playing sports, watching your siblings play sports? It was such a huge aspect of our lives, Little League or YMCA football or CYO. Is that something you've brought on to your memories to this day? I think for sure. You know, aside from before I was of age to go to school and I was four and five years old in Shelbyville, listening to my sister's K-Tel hit machine albums with Captain and Tennille and ABBA on them. But once we moved to Indianapolis in particular, you know, my oldest sister, Juge, was a really, really good athlete. She was a, a, a great softball player. She was on a team that went to the 1984 Big League World Series. I always felt bad for her because her team qualified. They knocked on the door in regionals a couple years in a row, and then they qualified in 1984 the Big League World Series of softball. And it was held in Indianapolis and I always felt bad the year before it was like in Fullerton or Long Beach, California. And I thought, man, of all the years you qualify for one and you get to go down next to, you know, downtown for crying out loud, instead of traveling, you know, back then you're you're so captivated by travel. But um, 
I recall very vividly going with my mom and going to Eastwood Middle School basketball, volleyball, softball games, and then Little League was such a big deal, Robert. I mean, I grew up on the northeast side in Allisonville Little League, and then, of course, I was never a good enough baseball player to make the all-star team. But it was so fun to then watch my friends that were on the Allisonville all-star team playing against Eagledale and, you know, Randsburg and Haverford and Fall Creek and all these different little leagues. And to this day, I mean, I'm 47 years old. And to this day, every once in a while, I'll be driving somewhere in town and I'll pass some ball field and I'll think to myself, oh, yeah, those guys. Those guys back in 1983 had a good team. They made the regionals, and they made the, you know, it was such a big deal. It was such a, a part of growing up here, um, and I'm sure it is, you know, anywhere in the United States. But there was definitely this has always been a very sports enriched town, and a community I think enriched town, and that's to me what was so fun. And to this day, you know, you mentioned Warren Central. I mean, maybe my brain is different, but when I hear Warren Central, you know, I immediately think. Oh, yeah, 85, 86, state champs, Jeff George knocked out Lars Tate in North Central, you know, in, in Lars' senior year when Jeff was a sophomore. And, and then in my years, Jamie Asher played basketball there and Greg Graham played basketball there. You know, you just go on and on and on. I mean, that's the way I think of – it's like I break down Indianapolis in my mind into the small sections or slices of the pie based on really what sports were played there or what athletes cut their teeth in that area mentioned earlier something about the Pan Am games and the Super Bowl of course because one of the things that has that I consistently ask the guests on the Leaders and Legends podcast is especially people who were who are a little bit older than us who were here maybe came of age a decade or 15 years before I did if I had told you in 2012 February 2012 that Indianapolis would be hosting a Super Bowl and we would completely redefine what it means to host a Super Bowl, what would, what would your answer have been? And whether it's Mike Lopresti or Mark Miles or Greg Ballard, Bill Benner, I mean, the list goes on and on. All these folks who are so, so much a part of the Indianapolis sports and governmental fabric, they all say, I would have said you were crazy. There's no chance in hell. That's one thing that's been consistent. The other thing, and you mentioned it before, and I quite frankly didn't have an appreciation for this. Uh, my only interaction with the Pan Am Games was the fact that I had to move out of my barracks at Fort Ben Harrison because the athletes from another country were taking it over. And so none of us were too thrilled about it. I'd never heard of the Pan Am Games before then. But that athletic competition showcased Indianapolis to the world in a way that had only been done before via the Indianapolis 500. And to hear you talk about it again and bring it up just confirms what so many people have said about the impact of the Pan Am Games on how people thought, is Indianapolis a big city? Can they pull this off? Leaping forward just a little bit to your career as a sports talk show host, because then we want to go back to kind of your formative years on that. Is that something that you heard when you interviewed guests or when you talked to sports celebrities that the Pan Am Games really made that big of a difference? I think to civic leaders, they would say yes. Now, you know, one of the things that I always have found interesting 
Robert, is in talking to professional athletes. A lot of professional athletes you find, and it's hard to believe this, you know, for guys like me and you, when you stop and you know, when you really think about it, but, you know, there wouldn't be, I mean, there are, but very few. There are very few prominent NBA players today that would have been of the age of even seeing and being aware of the Pan Am Games, for example, you know, back in 1987. Because it's hard to believe, you know, it was 33 years ago. But it's interesting to me when I talk to athletes that whether it be an NFL player, an NBA player, oftentimes it wasn't necessarily that they are where they are because they had this nonstop fueled passion and love for sports. Obviously that exists, but for many of them, they had an incredible natural ability and realized that that natural ability was going to be able to change the fate for themselves and their families and, and, and whatever else. So they didn't necessarily grow up scrutinizing the significance or the trajectory of the history of sports. I think sometimes those things get left to those of us like myself whose playing careers had a ceiling and a very clear ceiling. And so therefore a passion for sports, when you get to that watershed moment in your life where you figure out that, and for me, it would have been, you know, early high school that you had reached your athletic ceiling. Well, but I still love sports. So how can I, find a living in sports. Well, I can find a living in sports by studying it and learning the history of it and talking about it and dissecting it. Whereas I think if you were somebody with a natural God-given ability, when that watershed moment comes, you say, well, I'm going to make my living in sports by playing it. And I will leave the deciphering of it to everyone else. And to me, my personal experience is that finding the athlete that, and I think that's why Peyton Manning, for example, has, you know, I think that's kind of what separated Peyton Manning when he came into the NFL was the fact that his father had played in the NFL and he had listened to old games of Ole Miss on the radio and, or, you know, on tape. And so he had an appreciation and a, and a true understanding of those before him. And that's not to say that other guys don't have that appreciation. I just don't know that other guys absorb themselves with it the way those of us dorky guys with a microphone and a pen do. I'm not saying you're dorky, Robert. I'm talking about me. <laughs> you are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, the Crown Plaza Hotel and Grain Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the law firm of Bose, McKinney, and Evans, and the Bose Public Affairs Group, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is Jake Query, who is going to regale us with some more of his memory tricks and feats of strength, I should say. Uh, I've had a few conversations with him, and it's, it's particularly remarkable. So if you're looking for a partner, in some sort of sports trivia contest and you don't uh, ring up Jake, you are making a huge mistake. Uh, one question we ask everybody, Jake, is the same. And that is, is there a Hoosier leader or legend you particularly admire? There are a lot. Um, you know, I know that, I think for me, it was very, I can't 
emphasized enough, Robert, for whatever reason, and maybe it's odd, maybe it's, you know, maybe I'm alone in this, but this kind of love and pride I have about Indiana and being from Indiana and, you know, just being Hoosier through and through essentially. And going back to your question about kind of the coming of age and you know, the, the mid eighties for me and being of that age of, of kind of seeing the world through a different lens and realizing that other people can see you as well. I loved the fact, loved it that America for the most part went to bed every night by watching David Letterman. And I loved that David Letterman had the same pride in Indianapolis and, you know, Johnny Carson's from Nebraska, I believe. Um, I had to look up the other day. I think Jimmy Fallon is from, he might be from Michigan or maybe it's Jimmy Kimmel that's from Michigan. One of those two, you know, I'm not exactly sure where Ed Sullivan's from, but it would be hard pressed if you were somebody who watched David Letterman to not know based on routine references of it, that he was from Indianapolis. And so his, his ability kind of make Indianapolis cool and let people know that, that Indianapolis is a good place. I just had such a pride in that. And I, and you know, he was such a, a unique personality anyway, still is obviously. So I would say Letterman number one, but then in terms of, you know, people posthumously that I have a great admiration for and, and not to pigeonhole myself here into a sports conversation, but I read a lot about studied a lot about, tried to absorb as much as I can about gone around town to try to find the the footsteps thereof of two athletes, major Taylor and Oscar Charleston that were arguably the two most prominent African-American athletes of their era that were both, you know, in major Taylor's case, the first ever world champion in any sport that was African-American as a bicyclist at the turn of the 20th century. And then in Oscar Charleston's case, a top 10, certainly, maybe even top five all-time baseball player that played a lot of his time and spent a lot of his time here in Indianapolis with the ABCs and, and the Negro Leagues. And those two guys I have enjoyed and been fascinated by trying to learn and absorb as much about them as possible. But it's disingenuous, obviously, to say that I saw their, their touch on things during the era. So it would be Letterman active. Oscar Charleston, Major Taylor, posthumous. And it would be remiss of us not to mention the fact, to your point, what you said about Letterman making Indianapolis cool is is something I haven't heard before, but it couldn't be more on point. But for years, people went to sleep watching David Letterman and then woke up the next day and uh, had their breakfast and coffee with Jane Pauley. Yep. Who graduated from Warren Central. One of the things that's come through in, in talking with you is a love of the spoken word, and that is 100% a compliment. It's something that started at North Central and, and went through college. Talk to us a little bit about that aspect of your biography, when you caught the broadcasting bug, and then how it's kind of led to your career in sports. Well, when I was really little preschool age. I remember my mom bought me a little wooden wall decoration of a doctor. And she told me I was going to be a doctor. 
And I was on board with that. Okay, sure. Great. And then when I was like in second grade, my mom had a friend that worked at the IU Med Center. And so she took me down there to go see the Med Center for a day. And we went into the blood bank where they were separating plasma. And I walked out and like sat down on the ground. I still remember this like it was yesterday. And I was white as a ghost. And I said, I'm not going to be a doctor. Because I saw the blood and it, was just, it wasn't going to happen. And then, Robert, truth be told, you start getting things called report cards. And when the report cards came out, when you're you know, busting through solid B's and C's, med school probably isn't that it works for you. So, you know, I, I was lucky to grow up in a city that had great sports broadcasters. And the Indianapolis 500 on the radio, before I was old enough to go to the race, my, my, my grandparents lived in Claremont. My parents would take my younger sister and I, my middle sister, I should say, the younger of the two, and drop us off at my grandparents, and they would have the race on on the radio, and we would listen to the race, and I was mesmerized by it, like hearing the broadcast of it and just and listening to it and picturing it in my mind. and You know, it was this theater of the mind, and even at a, a, a young age, seven, eight years old, I was just absolutely taken by it. And then as an Indiana basketball fan, I absolutely loved listening to Don Fisher. I would tape Indiana games. I would listen to him. I would listen to his meter and his, his rhythm and the way he, his catchphrases. And, you know, on top of many others, obviously. But when I – so I decided at a fairly young age, once I knew I was going to be a doctor, that I wanted to do – and my biggest goal was – I wanted to do the Indianapolis 500 on the radio. I wanted to be part of that that I had listened to. And so I was extremely lucky that when I entered North Central, they had a radio TV program. And I used to listen to the North Central students do the games, talking back again about Lars Tate and Gary Thurman and the great North Central athletes of the early 80s taking on a young Jeff George. I mean, I listened to those games from the student broadcasters. And as far as I was concerned, I was listening to WFAN in New York. You know what I mean? I mean, it was... That was big-time broadcasting to me. So it's a junior-senior program at North Central at the J. Everett Light Career Center, WJEL. And I took the class as a junior. And you go through it as a junior, and then they ask back like 10 students for the senior year. And that's where you get the chance to really do on-air stuff. Well, I was in a unique situation because my junior year, I had just signed up for the class, and they came and said, hey, we had a senior that was supposed to do the football games on the radio, but they dropped the class. So we're actually going to hold an open tryout. So I went down with my tape recorder to a freshman football game the next day, along with about eight other guys, my buddy, Matt Gingle, who's now a writer for the Fort Worth star telegram an accomplished author in Texas was one of the guys that was trying out with me. Adam Alexander, who now does NASCAR on FS1 was playing on the football team so he didn't join until basketball season because we needed basketball also. But I tried out, and I'll never forget, Robert. I was standing, and I realize this story is significant to me and probably me only, but I was standing in line at the North Central Cafeteria, and somebody came up and said, hey, did you hear? And I said, hear what? And they said, you're doing the North Central game. Like, they picked you. Mr. Hendrickson, Mr. King picked you to be the guy. And I was the first junior to get that honor. And at that, at that age, it was a huge honor. And I've been very, very lucky to have done a lot of cool things in my career, but nothing that I've done made me more excited in the moment than that moment when I found out that I got to do North Central basketball and football on the radio as a junior. So I did that my junior, senior year. And then 
it wasn't so much about me setting out saying, this is my career goal. I want to make a career as a radio or TV broadcaster as much as I enjoyed it. And it came fairly easily to me. It, it wasn't really difficult to me. And I don't mean that arrogantly. I just, I didn't have to put a lot of work into it, truth be told. And I kept waiting for someone to tell me that I wasn't good enough to make a living at it. And I'm still kind of waiting for that. You know what I mean? And, and that may still come around the corner. I mean, I might be a week away from finding that out. I don't know. But so far, it's been a good run. In your mind, who is the best high school basketball player you've ever seen in Indiana? Boy, that is a great question. Um, the most dominant was that's Katie, that, that's Katie Gerald's, by the way, the most dominant. But You know what? I've said this before, Robert. The two, I, sh I should have thought of that. I went gender specific there and I apologize. I've said a million times. The two most dominant high school athletes that I have seen in the state of Indiana in person were Katie Gerald's for Beach Grove and basketball and James Banks for football at Ben Davis. Um, so Katie Gerald's is, hand, you're right, head and shoulders above. I mean, in terms of being above her peers, it was ridiculous. She was a phenomenal player and now is obviously a great coach at Marion. I used in to referee her, actually. I hate oh. to say that. Back I mean, when I was, was in was graduate probably, school and would referee said, basketball. Go ahead. Go ahead, please. Chris, cut that part out because I can't really hear him. Thanks, Chris. Anyway, go ahead, Jake, with your answer. Um, Katie Gerald's had to have been three paces ahead of, ahead of everybody. I mean, I know you told me one time that you had refereed her as a younger player, and I can't imagine because you would have been just – my eyes would have been glued on watching what she was doing and forgetting what everyone else was doing, right? It would have been like Kobe Bryant, uh, four years into his NBA career, deciding to enroll at IU and then playing in the Big Ten. I mean, it was phenomenal. <laughs> it, it, the thing was, is as a referee, you couldn't, you couldn't call fouls on her because she never fouled, and she constantly got fouled, and the, other, uh, the coach would get on your ass about it. And I was just looking there looking at him like, you're down by 30. She scored 80% of the points. You guys are hacking the hell out of her. She's shooting 90% from the free throw line. What do you want me to do? Like, it's not my fault. Uh, she, yeah, of all the people I ever refereed in all the AAU games I refereed, I never really did high school. I did AAU high school, but I didn't do like IHSA high school. But she was by far the biggest, the gap between her and everyone else on the court was unlike any I'd ever seen. Uh, I would agree with all of that. And, the, you know, the free throws that she hit to get Beach Grove into the finals, I mean, it's, it's truly remarkable. Um, you know, from a boys' basketball standpoint, Greg Oden was the most dominant, obviously, and I covered him. I was working at Channel 6 at the time. And you have the obvious. Sean Kemp was a dominant player. Damon Bailey was, you know, a legendary player. I'll give you a couple that I think get lost a little bit in, in the shuffle. Um, one of them, you know, he's a Mr. Basketball and he was a great player at Indiana, but Jay Edwards was so incredibly good in terms of being effortless. And, you know, I know that Pat Graham once told me that when Pat Graham was getting recruited to Indiana, Pat Graham and Mr. Basketball in 89, that he was watching a practice and that Knight made the comment to Pat Graham that Jay Edwards was the most naturally gifted player he'd ever coached. And that's the guy that coached Isaiah Thomas and coached Mike Woodson and coached Scott May and Quinn Buckner. You know, Edwards was that good, but 
I'll tell you a guy that doesn't get – you don't ever hear him mentioned. And this is not to say that he was the best player I saw, but the best player to me in terms of a guy that I watched and just thought he's just he was on a different level. And you never hear about him. So the best player to me among the obvious would be Archie Fuller of Anderson, who I think dropped 49 in the semi-state in the 90 tournament, got Anderson into the Final Four. That year when Bailey took the Final Four to the Hoosier Dome, and it was Damon Bailey – um, Elkhart Concord, or no, let me think, it was uh, Anderson, Southport, Elkhart Concord, and BNL. That's who was in the, the Final Four that year. And, um, you know, William Moore was a really good player for Southport, but I thought Archie Fuller at Anderson that year was a very underrated and unheralded star of, of my Jack Fuller. High school. Kojak Fuller's, Archie Fuller's older brother. Kojak okay. was a, I mean, Kojak was unbelievable. Now, Kojak Fuller, you know, that was an interesting year because when Kojak Fuller was in 93, made the all-star team, Sharon Wilkerson was awarded Mr. Basketball. Wilkerson, because he wasn't happy with the rotations or the minutes he was getting in the first of the two Indiana-Kentucky games, took himself off the all-star team. So they then awarded the Mr. Basketball. They stripped it from Sharon Wilkerson and gave it to Kojak Fuller. And years later, Kojak Fuller ran into legal problems, ended up incarcerated, there were legendary stories of him playing pickup ball in the parks of Anderson wearing his Indiana number one jersey cut off midriff. But you got to give Kojak Fuller, Archie's little brother, a lot of credit because he made mistakes. He learned from them. He got out. He rehabilitated himself. He learned from his mistakes and now works tirelessly dealing with youth through faith and speech and other meetings with people to make sure that people don't fall into the same traps that he did. Kojak was a dynamic player. Had he been the same size, had he been the same ability, but 6'2 instead of 5'9 or whatever he was, he would have been a big-time D1 player. One of the things that's been a common theme, not for everyone, but for a lot of people who've come on the Leaders and Legends podcast, and that is going to North Central. As Jake has talked about, we've had Mitch Daniels and Mark Miles Jeff Smullyan and um, Bart Peterson talked about what a wonderful school that was. And we've also had several people who went to Indiana University and are about to have another one because in just a few days, I'll be interviewing Ray Tolbert for the Leaders and Legends podcast, a member of the 1981 National Championship team. So let me ask the question I ask everyone who went to IU. Did you have fun? You know, I'm going to give an answer probably different than a lot of people. It was fine. From the time I got to, to Bloomington, my I had my exit strategy. And that's probably more on me than IU. But, you know, when you go to North Central, which is kind of like its own mafia in Bloomington, um, a lot of the things that I think that people experience in college and a lot of the avenues and opportunities that are open for them in college, I was very fortunate that, North Central opened that for me. You know, when I was in high school, I had friends that were Jewish. I had friends that were of a different race. I had friends that lived in Section 8 housing. I had friends whose parents made, you know, six and seven figures. So I had the, the whole gamut. And when I got to Indiana, and I know that, you know, I had a lot of friends that, that loved it and still go back to homecoming every weekend. I grew up such a rabid IU fan that I think what I – 
fell victim to, and this is on me, was I allowed the university to be defined by its athletic prowess. And so when I went to school there, I don't know that I ever fully embraced or grasped that I was at an institution of higher learning. For me, it was I was at the place that had the basketball team that I'd grown up worshiping. And I felt like the tools that I had in terms of being a broadcaster and, you know, I'd already done probably 75 or 100 basketball games on the radio and, and another 30 football games on the radio. And I'd anchored television shows. I mean, I know now, you know, I look back at it and I'm like, yeah, you did it on low rent, you know, high school township television. But still, I felt like the skill set that I had entering college, I didn't know what at college was going to do for that skill set. Now, obviously, now I know that at college, I further learned how to, to live with people different than I. I learned how to, you know, handle and, and deal with the responsibilities of the mistakes that I made, balancing my checkbook, being away from home, doing my laundry, you know, all that stuff. But um, I enjoyed it. I left there and came back to Indianapolis and I've been back five times to speak to kids and 10 times to cover games. And it's kind of weird. I, when I go back, truthfully, I don't get like all butterfly. I'm just like, Oh yeah. Okay. That's where I live. That's, that's weird. That was a long time ago. So that's not to say that I didn't enjoy it, but it wasn't, I don't have any desire or necessity to relive any of it. Your next-door neighbor was whom? Well, I lived next door, and it was great. And so, yes, I had fun in this regard. Um, <laughs> as soon as I moved down to Bloomington, I lived in Jackson Heights Apartments. And, you know, you, you, you open the door, and there's A, B, C, and D apartments. And I lived with my buddy Marcus Walton and a guy named Chris Townsend and a guy named Dennis Dunham, the four of us just, you know, four dudes in college living together. Well, yeah, let's go meet the neighbors. So we go across and we knock on the door and the door opens. And I'm like, and I grew up a massive Indiana basketball fan. I mean, like a zealot. Like I could tell you Bob Knight was born on October 25th, 1940. And I can tell you they beat Syracuse 74-73, North Carolina 63-50, Michigan 86-68, Kansas 60-42 and 69-68 for their five titles. Like huge IU fan. So the door opens and I'm like, that's Bob Knight's kid. And he's like, hey, what's up? And I'm like, well, I'm, I'm Jake. I'm your neighbor. And he's like, yeah, I'm Pat. So Pat Knight lived next door to me, and his roommate was a guy named Ryan Carr, who is now a vice president or an executive at the Pacers. He was the director of scouting for a while. I believe now his technical title is president of player development or vice president of player development. But So those two guys lived next door to us, and it was great. And we, I mean, we got along. It was wonderful. And we'd go back and forth all the time. Well, finally, by like mid-October, we're sitting around one night, and Pat's like, you know, we're constantly going back and forth between apartments why don't we just knock the wall down and make it one big condo? And we're like, can we do that? So Pat leaves. Of course, he lives in Bloomington. He's a native of Bloomington. He comes back, and he's got, like, goggles on and a power saw. And he's like, let's do it. <laughs> and we, we took the closet of our apartment, and we knocked the whole thing out. And then we went to White Rabbit in Bloomington on the square and bought those Greg Brady love beads and hung those. So, like, literally, I'd be in my room studying or sleeping or whatever, and you hear those beads chime, and you knew that it meant that Pat and Ryan were coming over to see us or we were going over there to see them or the dogs are running back and forth. And, of course, most of us are normal college guys, and we're like, well, what are we going to do, like, our deposit? 
So we had some guy, and everybody had this guy in college. There were two guys that lived around the corner from us named Linton and Flounder. Linton was from Linton, Indiana, and Flounder looked like the dude from Animal House. And Flounder knew how to drywall, and Linton knew how to – so they they came the last weekend of the school year and sealed the wall back up, and the apartment never knew anything about it. We got our deposit back, and all was well and good. And I'm still friends with Ryan and Pat to this day. I love those guys. I mean, we – we sit around and tell stories. So yes, I guess I was a little disingenuous in my answer in terms of things, not necessarily directly tied to the university itself. I had a great time down there and I made great friends and, you know, we did it pretty much innocuously. If you can exclude knocking down a wall to combine two apartments into one, you know, in that, but we had a good time, man. In that regard, we had a lot of fun and those guys were a lot of fun. Part of, Part of your uh, curriculum vitae is interning at MTV in New York City. But before I ask you about that, one of the things that you let me know, which I find incredibly interesting, is that you have a letter from Charles Manson and you have a letter from Kurt Vonnegut. Why? In the, in the former and pretty darn cool when it comes to the latter. Is it something that you solicited from them? How did these sorts of let, how did these letters come into your possession? You know, when you ask me about people from Indianapolis that I have a great inspiration for, I, I, I was remiss in not saying Kurt Vonnegut. Uh, so we'll begin with that. You know, quite frankly, my mom went to Short Ridge and I knew the history and the the contribution of, of Short Ridge High School and what a great high school it was. And, you know, it had a daily newspaper, the Daily Echo, I think it was called back in the day. And and I knew that, you know, Senator Luger and Kurt Vonnegut were two of its more esteemed products. And when I was in college, in Bloomington, as a matter of fact, I started reading Kurt Vonnegut books. I hadn't read Slaughterhouse-Five or Breakfast of Champions or some of his bigger ones in high school, like a lot of people. I didn't read them until college. And I'll never forget, I guess that all kind of does tie together. In 1994, when I went to MTV to, to intern, it was during the Pacers-Knicks series where Reggie Miller had the 25 points in the fourth quarter and gave Spike Lee the choke sign. And I was reading Cat's Cradle by Kurt Vonnegut, like in that exact same week. And the Pacers won game five, and then they, went, they came back here, and Vern Fleming missed a late layup that probably could have sealed it for him, and John Starks went off, and they lost game six. So they go back to Madison Square Garden for game seven, and they had a chance to win the game. Patrick Ewing committed 36 fouls, and they didn't call any of them. And <laughs> Reggie Miller missed a shot that would have, I think, either forced overtime or won the game. And I just remember being so depressed, and I had a Sony sports walkman, and I walked up and down Fifth Avenue listening to the last, like, 30 seconds of that game all by myself in New York City. And the Knicks win, and I'm, like, totally downtrodden. And I go back into my apartment, and I picked up Cat's Cradle to continue reading it. And it was the, the part of Cat's Cradle by Kurt Vonnegut that contains the line, you know, you'd be hard-pressed to go anywhere without finding a Hoosier that hasn't made his contribution. And it says, we Hoosiers got to stick together. And it was, it was like this great epiphany for me. Here I was, this lone, lonesome Hoosier in the middle of Gotham with the Knicks ousting the Pacers, and yet I picked up this book 
And this guy that went to the same high school my mom went to, it was like he was saying to me, like, it's going to be all right because you're just because you're from Indiana, you, it doesn't mean you can't make your mark. So I went back to Bloomington and I wrote a letter to Kurt Vonnegut. And I said, and I don't recall exactly, Robert, how I got his home address, but somehow I did. And I wrote him a letter that said, it's my understanding that you get into correspondence with people and that you've had pen pals in the past. And I go to Indiana and one of my dear friends and dear family friends, Sheila DeMars, who I grew up with, her grandfather and her father were Geipel DeMars, the construction firm here in Indianapolis. And her aunt had gone to prom with Kurt Vonnegut. So I referenced it in the letter. Hey, my friend, Sheila DeMars, her aunt Marge went to prom with you and my mom went to Short Ridge. And so I want to know if you want to be like, if you want to enter into correspondence. And about two weeks later, I got a letter and the return address on the letter was from Kilgore Trout and it had his address. And it was a typed letter with a couple of typos in it, which was beautiful, from Vonnegut. And it basically said, I got your letter. I appreciate it. I do remember your Aunt Marge. He obviously mistakenly thought I was saying it was my aunt. It was Sheila DeMars's aunt. But he said, I do remember your Aunt Marge. You know, she was a great gal. Her father helped build my dad's home near Williams Creek. And then he said, but I have no interest in corresponding with you or anyone else on planet Earth because, quite frankly, I'm absolutely sick and tired of writing. But I wish you the best in your intellectual growth at Indiana University. It's a fine institution and you couldn't do yourself any better like best of luck to you Kurt Vonnegut and it was the most Vonnegut style letter ever <laughs> we need to do a podcast that was cool. on, Chris and I have talked about that we need to uh, some of my friends especially Kip too is a big uh, Vonnegut uh, fan and and an expert I think based on some of the conversations I've had with him and, and obviously we're very proud of him here uh, in the Hoosier State, uh, another Hoosier who we are perhaps less proud of is someone else from whom you have a letter. Yeah, so Charles Manson, and I think now most people probably know this, but Charles Manson was born in Cincinnati, Ohio, and around the age of seven, six or seven years old, his mother followed a guy that she had an interest in to Indianapolis. And so he basically lived in Indianapolis with his mom who by all accounts, you know, I mean, I guess I don't want to begrudge someone who's not here to defend themselves, but doesn't appear as though she was the most responsible mother of all time. And so he kind of lived in and out between being a ward of the state and different boys homes and things like that until he basically left Indiana in the late forties and set off for Actually, I guess it would have been a late 50s, something like that. Set off to California and was heard from again, obviously, many years later. So I was always fascinated by that. And I wrote him a letter in about 2004, somewhere in there. I was working at Channel 6 at the time. And I wrote Manson a letter and I used my Channel 6 address because I didn't necessarily, Robert, want him knowing where I live. You know, I didn't want his and stopping by. So you didn't want to meet any of the girls. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. If, if squeaky was going to come by to say hi, you know, I just didn't. So, so anyway, I wrote him this letter and literally, I mean, I can still tell you verbatim what I said to him. All I said in the letter was I wrote dear Charles Manson as a native of Indianapolis. I have one question for you. How much of the time you spent in my hometown contributed to making you the adult you became? Please let me know, Jake Query, Indianapolis, Indiana. 
And I had kind of forgotten about it. I mean, it had been months. And I'm at work one day at Channel 6, and I go to my mailbox. Oh, look, I got mail. And I pick up this letter, and I'm like, what is this? I mean, it was made out to Jake Query Incorporated, 1330 North Meridian. It had stamps all over it that said State Prison Corcoran, California State. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, what is this? And then I opened it up, and it was basically one continuous run-on sentence of syntax and spelling errors. But I'm about a third of the way through it, and I thought, oh, my God, this is from Charles Manson. And he started it out by saying, I did indeed live in Indianapolis at, and he had the address that was on Meridian, not far from where you live today. And I thought, well, thank God he thinks I live at 1330 <laughs> North Meridian. Um, and he basically chronicled every place. I mean, literally, like in chronological order, he, he just he listed every place that he had been arrested or incarcerated. He mentioned, he said, I used to run a, a, a gang called the Hoods on Fall Creek and we stole bikes. And at one point I was locked up in the juvenile hall at 25th and Keystone. And then like in this moment of clarity in parentheses, it just said, is it still there? Which it is. Um, and he listed all the places that he had been Plainfield and Terre Haute and boys school and, and then he said, eventually I went to the U.S. court and signed a paper, and the old man let me leave the state. And then he said, but I loved Indiana very much. I've always considered it home, and I've left love there for you, Charles Manson. And it is kind of weird, Robert, because what do you do with something like that? I ultimately framed it. It's not necessarily the kind of thing that you put up next to your Van Gogh in your living room, but just to protect it, I guess I framed it, but it is fascinating to me because virtually, not virtually, realistically, every person that sees it literally has the same two reactions. The first one is, okay, that is super weird and creepy. And then instantly almost in the same breath, but can I see it? And then they're like, what he wrote this like Charles Manson, Charles Manson held on to this. I'm like, yeah, that's his, that's his handwriting. That's his signature. So that's how it came to be that I have a letter from Charles Manson. I don't know what I'll ever do with it. It's framed. Um, but it's kind of a, I'm sure the Indiana Historical Indiana Society would take it. Yeah. You know, I mean, in that regard, it's pretty interesting. I unfortunately uh, stumbled upon this book uh, when I was 12. It was the summer of 1980. And it had some really weird pictures in the middle of it. And I decided to read it and not really knowing anything about <laughs> so it. Where are you going with that? And the book uh, was called, is called Helter Skelter. And I read not all of it, but most of it. And I'm not ashamed to say that I slept with my mother for about six months straight. And unfortunately, still to this day, have um, Sharon Tate, Charles Manson nightmares. So be careful what you pick up at a young hey, age. I'll tell you this, Robert, not to add too much here, but I have always been fascinated like you, and it, it's from that book, actually. My mother had the book when I was a kid. I always had a fascination with the counterculture movement and the end of the hippie era and, you know, how, how girl, you know, for the most part, parochial, well-raised middle school or, excuse me, Midwest girls end up out there, you know, following into this cult. But I've gone several times when I've been in Southern California. I've gone and I've 
I hope this doesn't offend people, but I've gone to Cielo Drive, where formerly the Tate House was, the Tate Polanski House, and I've also been to, and it's still standing, Lino LaBianca's house, which was night two of the Manson murders. And did you go to I the Coyote? There. I've been to the El Coyote. I've actually sat in the. T- not I did not ask for it. Let me be very clear. But the last time I was at El Coyote, they seated me at the table that Sharon Tate and Abigail Folger and the rest of them sat and had dinner the night, unfortunately, that they had the fate of being the victims of the murder. But I went to Lino Lombianca's house, and as I pulled up and got out just to look at the house, the neighbor was out. Nice woman. And Waverly, isn't it? Waverly Drive, I think, is the address? Correct. Correct. It's in Silver Lake area of L.A. Mm -hmm. And so I start talking to the next door neighbor. Now, this was obvious. I mean, this was like five years ago. And so I say to her, now, just out of curiosity, what did it do to the property value of this home? That it still is, you know, a standing home where the Manson murders took place. And she said, oh, you know, Gary or whoever lives there now, I think Gary paid such and such for it. And that's below value. And now, what brings you here? And I said, well, I, I, I'm here to broadcast a race in Long Beach, and we had downtime. And I've always been fascinated since reading Helter Skelter, you know, basically your story, Robert. And as I'm telling her this, I kid you not, this woman says to me, you know, I've got some furniture that I need moved in the house. Would you mind giving me a hand? So this woman, <laughs> only knowing that I was there to see a house where the Manson murders take place, invites me into her home to help move furniture because she was like selling it or taking it to Goodwill or whatever. And I was in her house for like 15, 20 minutes, moving stuff around and lifting up this table and over here and over there. Couldn't have been a nicer lady and clearly very trusting. But I was just like, well, you're a big okay. dude, man. I get it. I get it completely. I think that's, we'll move on. But sure. if, if memory serves the reason the LaBianca house was selected was because months and months previous to the murders in August of 69, Manson was at a, I'm assuming, drug-fueled party right next door. And the LaBiancas were the ones who called the police. And the police came and broke up the party. And Manson never forgot. So beware. Yeah, he had... um... When you call and rat out the folks next door or just trying to have a good time. Let me ask a question. True or false? You were asked to be a pallbearer for Mickey Rooney's funeral. That is true. hundred percent truth. Um, same weekend, as a matter of fact, not the same year, but three years ago, IndyCar race. I'll try to make this story short, Robert, but it's unbelievable. So I'm doing, I did an afternoon sports talk show here in Indianapolis on an iHeartRadio sports station. And we were getting ready. I have two, I had two jobs, that job. And then doing play by play for the IndyCar series. So Derek Schultz, who I did the show with, were on the air. It was like a Thursday, a week before I was getting ready to go to our annual IndyCar trip to Long Beach. And Derek says to me on the air, Hey, you know, I know whenever you go to LA, you always do like crazy little field trips. You go to the Brady Bunch house or the ET house or the LaBianca house, you know, what, what do you have planned? And I said, you know, I think I'd like to go to one of the older cemeteries and see some of the stars of yesteryear, you know, their resting places like forever Hollywood cemetery. And he says, well, who's buried there? 
And I said, you know, I'm not even sure. I think one of the Ramones and maybe like Toto from the Wizard of Oz. And, and I said, and, I, and maybe Mickey Rooney. And Derek stops me and says, dude, Mickey Rooney's still alive. Well, this is on the air, like on a Thursday. He passes away like 48 hours later. So my Twitter blows up from people like, oh, my God, you killed Mickey Rooney. Like you mentioned <laughs> it on the air and it died 48 hours later. Way to go. So, so, we, go ahead, so we go ahead and go that Saturday – a week later, we're in L.A., and I'm like, well, let's go to Forever Hollywood Cemetery. And Mark James and Nick Yeoman, who are two of my co-broadcasters, Mark James is our anchor, Nick and I are turn announcers for IndyCar Radio. We, on Saturday afternoon after practice and qualifying, drive up to L.A., and we go to Forever Hollywood. And it's like 5.30. It's close to, you know, I think the, the cemetery closed at 6. So we pull in, and Mark is looking on the Internet. He says, hey, it says here that there's a, you can get a map in the floral shop so i see what i think is the floral shop i pull in i say hey guys wait here i'll go in and look i walk into this gazebo and there are like 12 guys sitting around with empty vodka bottles everywhere and a food spread and i'm like what is going on and one of the guys stumbles over to me and in very broken english welcomes me and is insistent that i start drinking vodka with him and I'm immediately picturing my kidneys on eBay. And I'm like, I don't know what's going on here. So turns out, I'll, I'll cut to the chase, even though I've made it very long. He wanted me to then go to his father's grave in the cemetery because he is the, the gentleman. His name was Arson, was the headstone maker for the cemetery. His father was entombed in the cemetery. They were of Armenian culture. And in their culture, on the date in which an individual passes away, you celebrate their life by getting together and having basically a celebration of life every year on that date. And that was this particular date. So we went out and he showed me his grand or his father's grave and yada, yada, yada. I came back to the gazebo. Mark and Nick are now have joined the party and they're drinking Corona and they're giving high fives and doing vodka shots. The president of the cemetery is among the party. I begin talking to him, and he says, now, how did you end up here? And I said, look, man, we were just looking for a map. And that was like two hours ago, and now you're closed, and I'm here with the headstone cutter. And what? And I said, well, who else buried here? And he says, oh, we've got so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so. And then he says, uh, and actually, Mickey Rooney is here, too. We're, we're putting him to rest on Monday. And I'm like, wait a minute. Mickey Rooney's here, like, on the property? Oh, yeah, yeah, we're, we've got him, you know. So he proceeds to give us a full cemetery tour stuff that I probably shouldn't talk about publicly that he gave us access to, which was unbelievable. Couldn't have been nicer. We're there for probably four hours. And at the end of the evening, we're in his office. We're in the office of the president of the cemetery and he's pulling up stuff. And he says, when do you guys fly back? And I said, well, I'm on a red eye Sunday night after the race tomorrow night. And he's Robert, a hundred percent like dejected and despondent, like slumps in his seat. And I'm like, why? And he said, well, Mickey Rooney doesn't really have any remaining surviving family. He had like a nephew and there was some debate with his family over his estate and where he was going to be buried. So they didn't want anything to do with his funeral. And Arson was given the day off because it was the week of his father's passing anniversary. And, you know, Bill was off because like his mom was sick. And so the president of the cemetery looks at the three of us and says, I need pallbearers for Monday for Mickey Rooney. Can you, can you do it? And I'm like, wait a minute. 
Like, I'm a jackass sports broadcaster from Indianapolis who saw Black Stallion and Pete's Dragon at the Glendale Cinema when I was seven. <laughs> and you're asking me to Paul Bear for him? And I thought, this guy's going to wake up in the morning and be like, what did I just do with those guys from Indiana? And the next day, he sent us a message how wonderful it was to meet us, and he can't wait to see us again next year and let us know if we let him know if we can stay on Monday. And I'm such a dedicated, loyal employee that I'm like, no, I've got to get back and do my radio show on Monday. So I tell them no. I fly back. I'm in our production meeting on Monday morning. I tell my general manager the whole story, and he's like, why are you here? And I said, because I have a radio show to do. And he's like, there's no radio show that ever is going to be a better story than the fact that you could have been a pallbearer for Mickey Rooney. All you had to do was stay overnight and change your flight and miss a day at work. And I said, well, I'm dedicated. And that ended up getting me laid off as part of a 2,000-person layoff from the company like five years later. So, I mean, there you go, right? That's how it worked. <laughs> I had Way read longer story than it needed to be, but it was still pretty unbelievable. Uh, it's the first reference to Mickey Rooney, I believe, in any Leaders and Legends podcast. But... <laughs> I had read before that he was, I mean, you're talking about a guy who was married to Ava Gardner and who starred with Judy Garland, but had fallen on such hard times. He would accept money to show up at like high school and college parties. Like you could pay $500 and have Mickey Rooney show up at your kegger. You know, kidding and flippant nature aside, part of it too was, you know, he lived a very long time. So unfortunately he's, you know, he, he survived. He outlived a lot of his friends and family. But I will say that there were a lot of things that were illuminated to us, maybe even more so than should have been, about his situation and his estate and the fate where he would have needed someone like myself to be a pallbearer. Um, and it was, it was sad. It was sad. It was disappointing. It was tragic to an extent. I mean, part of it, part of it, I guess, was the triumph, the fact that he lived as long as he did and probably was exploited by some people and divorces, I'm sure, didn't help as well. Um, but it was sad. It was unfortunate. It was sad. And you're talking about somebody who at one time was probably one of the wealthiest and certainly most influential entertainers in the world. And we're talking a net worth probably under $20,000 upon his passing. But I think it also goes to show that I think people get too caught up in who they are and, and what they are. And I think people lose sight of the fact that in the end, everybody has the same things that they have to confront. And, you know, it, it really was, surreal to me and kind of deep really to sit there and think that this was somebody who probably at one time, not unlike Michael Jackson, I had the same thought when Michael Jackson passed away, had access in their fingertips on anything in the world at any point they wanted it. But in the end, it all comes down to the same thing. And then, you know, then your legacy has to be, what did you do to impact other people that goes beyond where you are? Those two guys did that. Don't get me wrong but it didn't help him in that moment, which was very strange. We, we kind of glanced over it earlier here in the, the last minutes of the podcast before we get to the final five questions that we ask everybody. But you interned at MTV at a time where I think MTV was still playing music. Do you have, yep. and, as, and as someone who, uh, I'm a child of the 80s, so I remember seeing MTV uh, 
in the early 80s when I'd go visit my family in New Jersey and then having it when cable came around. And as I've told my kids, I said, you know, I feel sorry for you that despite all the technology and everything that you have, um, you didn't, never got the experience of coming home from school and doing your homework while listening to MTV for the next five or six hours. It was probably along with uh, Ronald Reagan, the biggest single biggest aspect of growing up in the 80s is MTV. Uh, must have been an honor to work there. Do you have one or two particular uh, quick ce celebrity uh, musician stories that you can share? I will tell you this. You're right. It was great. Um, when I was in 1994, I went on spring break. I went to New York City. I'd never been there before. I had a friend whose cousin lived there. So I went and crashed on her couch with a handful of resumes and went to every broadcast facility in New York City trying to get an internship. And MTV, I think, felt sorry for me and brought me on to be an intern for MTV Sports, which was hosted by Dan Cortez. And oh, yeah. after like the first week of doing that, I was like, you know, I don't know, like the sport, it was like extreme sports. Dan Cortez is a nice guy, don't get me wrong, but they didn't do a lot. They only, you know, did like one show a month. So I asked for a change and they instead put me on a show called 120 Minutes, which aired every Sunday night. It was a two hour alternative music show. We would tape on Tuesdays and my job basically was to pull all of the video for whoever was going to be the host, that the musical host, anything from Luna to L7 to... Elvis Costello, and I was in the studio one time, L7 was playing, and they had a friend that was sitting next to me, and they had a little bar set up with bagels, and then it had a, a closed-circuit television that had MTV, to your point, Robert, when it was still playing music videos, playing in it, and the song Heart Shaped Box by Nirvana came on, and this was about probably three or four months after Kurt Cobain had passed away. And this woman next to me says, and it's just the two of us sitting there outside the studio while they're taping with L7. And this woman says, uh, can you change the channel, please? And I said, well, I, I don't know how to change the channel. It's a closed circuit. Change the channel, please. And this goes back and forth a few times. And I, I mean, she looked vaguely familiar to me, but I didn't think much of it. And finally, she goes off, calls me names that I was kind of impressed with the way she was able to string, string together different profanities that I'd never heard used in that combination before. And she storms off and somebody else comes up and says, what was that all about? And I said, I, I don't know, man. Like some lady was upset about the closed circuit. She didn't want to watch the video. And the guy says to me, Oh, Courtney. And I said, what do you uh -oh. mean? Said, well, that was Courtney Love. So it was Courtney Love. And then it made sense to me why she didn't want to watch Kurt Cobain for three straight minutes sitting in front of her and why she was upset with me and a little bit volatile. Um, but I had interactions with, you know, ice cube came through one time and was super nice. Um, Cindy Crawford worked in the building and was the most downer. I mean, it's not like I had lunch with her, but in the times that I interacted with her in the building, she could not have been a nicer, more down to earth person. It was a great opportunity. It was great because I was the only intern that was there specifically to intern at MTV. Most of it were kids that lived in that area and worked like two days a week. I was there five days a week, eight hours a day. Um, I loved every minute of it. I love living in New York. I think that living in New York for the period of being an intern at the age of 21 in New York City more contributed and molded to who I am today than any other window of my upbringing. Really? There's just, you have to believe in yourself. I, I remember the day that I 
I mean, I'd never been to New York. I'd been there for a week to get an internship. And then, and I mean, God loved my parents and my grandparents for making it both financially and, you know, realistically possible for me to live in an NYU housing building for, you know, several months while I and went to work every day. Took the subway from Greenwich Village into Manhattan. I lived, Sarah Jessica Parker lived on the street that I lived on, and I thought she was like the hottest thing ever. I mean, it was, it was tremendous. But I remember... <clears throat> Again, my Sony Walkman walking the very first day that I was in New York. And I remember the song Collective Soul had a song that came on. Um, Shine was the name of the song was playing. And I was walking and I was terrified. And I just thought, what am I doing? There are 17 million people, people here. Like, who in the world are you to think that you can get by? And I had to sink or swim. And that's not to say I swam well. But it got to the point where, I, you know, I took the subway every day. I went into work. I did what I had to do. I, I learned. I saw how to, how to work with people in a real business. I saw how not to work with people in a real business, how to treat people, how not to treat people. Um, I saw the competitive nature of it. But I also learned that in that competitive nature, in my opinion, the people that I saw that were doing it right were the people that had a compassion about them. And it didn't matter. I mean, I just assumed that New York was this big, nasty, heat-churning, spit-you-out city. And I had experiences and I had some moments there where people that I'd never met before looked out for me. And I came through situations on the other side for the better. And I never forgot that. And... I've always tried to carry it. And that's kind of what I learned in New York, that you had to have a belief in yourself, but you also had to believe that if you had that belief in yourself, other people were going to believe in you too. And, that's kind and of I learned time that in New York better than anywhere else. And that's kind of a time when New York was coming back, and Seinfeld and Law and & Order and Friends. I mean, you know, for a while, New York was such a disaster as a city. Um, a lot of these shows, L.A. Law or Brady Bunch or whomever, were being filmed and focused more in Los Angeles or in California than New York. But, but the nineties Renaissance of the city, quite frankly, made possible in, in a lot of ways by Rudy Giuliani uh, changed that city and, and made it cool again. So I'm a little jealous that you were there at that particular time. It was great. The Rangers won the Stanley cup. The Knicks were in the finals. Um, it was great, man. I mean, and I wore a Pacers shirt. <laughs> During that series, every day. I had the same Pacer shirt award every day. And uh, people would rip me, but nobody was rude. I mean, it was crazy. Like, I had – I'll do this in 30 seconds. New York – MTV sent me – the Rangers had won the Stanley Cup. They sent me with $3,000 cash on the subway out to Coney Island to buy custom-made Rangers jerseys for all of the VJs in New York. So I'm going out there with $3,000 cash on me. I'm coming back. And this was like two weeks after I started there. I, I mean, I was as green in New York as it gets. I'm coming back with a clear trash bag with 15 $200 jerseys in the bag, custom-made Rangers jerseys on the eve of the Stanley Cup parade. And I kid you not, and I don't believe in this kind of stuff, and people are going to think I'm crazy, and that's just fine. I'm on the train, and – I don't know anybody on it. I'm sure I look terrified and it's not the best part of New York where I had to go to get these things picked up. 
And a guy about my age sits down next to me and says, Knicks or Nets? And I said, what? And he said, are you a fan of the Knicks or the Nets? And I said, well, I'm kind of a Pacer fan. And he said, but of those two, which one do you like better? And I said, the Nets. And he said, okay, you and I are going to sit here and talk about the Knicks and the Nets until you get to the stop where you're going. Where are you going? I said, West Fourth. Okay. And we sat and talked about the Knicks and the Nets for 20 minutes. And I kid you not, Robert, hand on the Bible or whatever book you want it to be on. This is a true story. He says to me, your stop is the next stop. And I said, yeah. And he goes, okay. And we get to the stop that was Battery Park or whatever's before West Forth. And we get back going on the train. And I get up to go align myself to the window. to, And it's a fairly packed train. Get in position to exit on West Forth. And the doors open up, and I turn around to say goodbye, and I never saw the dude again. I have no idea where he went. But that guy looked out for me, and he didn't know me from Adam. But he could tell that I was in a situation that I wasn't totally comfortable, and he looked out for me. And as a result of that, I've never forgotten it. And 25 years later, when I see people in a situation that I can tell they're not totally comfortable, I do my best to ask them Knicks or Nets. Great story. As someone who just took my kids, we went to New York. I was 52 years old before I went to New York City for the first time. I actually spent my birthday there. And then the next day, which is Festivus, my kids and I went to Monk's uh, and celebrated in fine style. And it is New York City was a unique, a very unique experience but it was a wonderful experience. People were very kind and it's one of the best trips I've ever taken. So living there, I'm sure would have just been amazing. You are listening to the Leaders and Legends podcast. It's presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, the Crown Plaza Hotel and Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the law firm of Bowes, McKinney, and Evans, and the Bowes Public Affairs Group, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest today on the Leaders and Legends podcast is Jake Query. We end the podcast with the same five questions to everyone. Jake, I know you've listened to the podcast before. You've been very kind about it. Are you ready for your questions? I'm ready. Let's go. What was your first job? First job I ever had, uh, other than being an Indianapolis News Honor Carrier, was I, and it was the best first job that any kid could have, and it breaks my heart every time I drive past one, it's no longer there, but I was a uh, carryout boy and stock boy at O'Malley's Food Market at 56th and Emerson and loved every minute of it. What was your first concert? First concert I attended, 1983, um, I went and saw Lionel Richie and Tina Turner opened. It was just before Tina Turner's private dancer tour. I had no idea, of course, I was only 10, that Tina Turner had already had a career with Ike Turner and was now launching into what would be a massive, impactful album in private dancer. But I loved Lionel Richie, and uh, I saw Lionel Richie and Tina Turner in Market Square Arena. If you could suggest any book for someone to read, which book would you choose? Boy, that's tough. Um, 
going to go a little off the beaten path and one that's a little bit, maybe some might say juvenile, but the book that I most enjoyed at the time that I first read it and have enjoyed several times since, and each time at each different phase of life that I am, I see the book to be representative of a different commentary of man, even though it's not about man, but I'll go with Watership Down by Richard Adams. I was wondering if you were going to uh, select Helter Skelter, so I'm glad we skipped that. <laughs> no, I, I, I want to make sure that people are getting a sound night's sleep. <laughs> Question number four, if you could witness any event in history, be there as it happens, which event would you choose? Boy, that is really tough. Um, and, why don't you, and I why don't you choose? A, why don't you choose a historical event real quick, and then choose a sporting event real quick? Do both. Uh, the sporting event I would pick would be the 1913 Indianapolis 500 because I'm fascinated with Jules Gu, who was the first international winner and also the first winner to return the next year to defend his crown. I would love to know what the speedway looked like back then, what the crowd was like. So I will say the 1913 Indy 500 as the um, the sporting event in terms of the historic event that I would most want to see. Um, man, I mean, that, that's really, there, there are just so many, I, I guess, to be honest with you, I would want to sit over the course from the time that he began to the time he finished. I'd like to sit invisibly in the room and see how, laborious it was or easy it was to watch Thomas Jefferson write the Declaration of Independence. That's a terrific answer. And anyone who's read anything about that time period or, or Jefferson or the, or the Declaration itself, it's a terrific, terrific story. If you don't, if you aren't that familiar with it, please uh, take some time. There's several uh, really good books about it, but uh, it was, it's a masterpiece to say the least. Question number five, if you could have dinner with anyone living today, two hours off the record, whom would you choose? For a long time in my life, I would have said David Letterman, but I've had the pleasure through racing circles of being able to, to have his ear in his company for a while. Um, I think if I, Boy, that's, I mean, two hours now they, and they have, do they have to be 100% candid with me about everything off the record? Naturally, the natural curiosity there would be OJ Simpson, but I don't think that he's worthy of two hours of my time. Um, I think I'd go with George W. Bush. I think that he was not only to talk to him about his father, who I have a great respect for, but also he was a president during a time when some pretty significant things happened. And um, I think both he and Barack Obama just come off as very decent men that would be engaging for a two-hour conversation. But because Bush has a lineage to a longer amount of historical stuff, I think I'd go with George W. Bush. And he's been a popular choice for a lot of reasons. He's also... Um... It would be interesting just to ask him about what it was like to grow up to 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 do something knuckleheadish and walk into the house and have to face Barbara Bush. I'm sure, yeah, for I'm sure, sure that right? was joyous. No question. 
Our guest today on the Leaders of Leaders and Legends podcast is Jake Query. Uh, Jake's a lot of things. He's a sports trivia aficionado. He has a terrific career in broadcasting and as a journalist. He's also, and I don't know him well, but based on the few conversations I've had with him, one of the most proud Hoosiers I've ever met. He exemplifies what this state means, not only in his kindness, but in his love of all things Indiana. Jake, thank you very much for your time today. Let's, let's do it again sometime. You know, it's my pleasure. I appreciate it. I'm very flattered. I know that I'm not worthy of it. Um, and the last thing that I would add in terms of the list of adjectives there, which you, I appreciate what you said. I'm also unemployed. So if anybody has any ideas, feel free to get a hold of me. Well, Chris Spangle is the master of the universe working under the thrall of Abdul Hakim Sabaz. So, you know, you, if you know Chris Spangle, you know everybody. <laughs> That's true. Thank you, Jake, very much. Please tell Shannon we said hey. Will do, man. I appreciate it. Thanks. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. Thank you.